Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. Welcome to episode 30 of Middle Brown, I almost said the wrong the wrong show name, of Middle Brown Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Goddick. Happy New Year, Happy everybody. Happy New this Year! The beginning of a, of a brand new year that's going to be even better than the last one, if, oh, I, if, if previous years are any indication. Yep. Um, and I figured, you know, for making it through 2020, we all deserve a treat. Yes. So. Oh, wait. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> We are returning to my favorite website. My favorite oh, website is Nature's Designs Online, Reproductions oh, yeah. and Taxidermy by Joel Donahue mm. since 1978. I will say about five minutes before we before we started this call, I was I was terrified because I went to my bookmark for Nature's Designs Online, as one does, and as one does. it didn't show up. It was like, hey, this oh, page no. doesn't exist. But luckily, just Googling uh, Nature's Designs Online, Joel Donahue. First result, boom. We're back up. So, um, for those who don't remember... Or Mr. Donahue before, got it, getting on that uh, Squarespace shit. Yeah. Uh, actually, it's a WordPress site. Ah, okay. All right. Um, Clearly, Mr. Donahue does not listen to podcasts. Joel Donahue, for those who don't remember, is a man who makes reproduction animatronic eagles, as well as authentic Cat of Nine Tails, uh, like the ones that <laughs> our Lord Jesus was whipped with. Which I love because either of those occupations are insane. Like neither of those are things that you would just do as a normal human being. What if someone and was, this man? Yeah. What if someone was pious and a patriot in the most addled way, <laughs> in the most beautiful way? So last time we read from his page. Uh, luckily, in updating his website, he did not change the copy on his website, which Good is call. what I want. And last time we read from the Eagles page. Uh, which was beautiful. You know, talked about patriotism, talked about how amazing eagles are and how they're a gift from God and they show God's grace, all that kind of stuff. You know, everything so, you want from your reproduction eagle <laughs> merchant. So we're going to learn about uh, Jesus whips now? We absolutely are, Derek. Mm-hmm. First of all, I, I want you to guess how much do you think these things cost? Oh, boy. Okay. Um, you asked me about the eagles and I forget if I won that or not, but okay. So these are handcrafted. For, I, bespoke- I, I, if I remember correctly, you lowballed the eagles. I lowballed the eagles, huh? Um, okay, so these are same problem that Don Henley had. <laughs> I feel like I feel Joke like Henley really makes sense, but you know, no. I well, I think of like the Eagles. Eagles, who's the lowballer? Gotta be Glenn Fry, right? Mighty less, might he rest in peace? Anyway, you sure you don't just want to talk about the Eagles for like two hours? Yeah, the Eagles are a pretty about- good band. I- I think that the Eagles are far better than they get credit for. That's my opinion. I have, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with the Eagles. <laughs> I, I mean, they've made certainly some terrible songs. Sure. But they've I also mean, made some si- quite good songs. I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't get very emotional whenever I hear Desperado. I mean, I'm not a liar. Now, let me figure out the price of these Jesus whips. Um, yes. They're, um, okay, for, so- for what's worth, they come in four varieties, from three-strap to 12-strap. 
So what am I? Which one am I guessing? Uh, let's go with the twelve strap. That's 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 the the luxury model. Cat of twelve tails. Um. Okay, so it's a bespoke handcrafted leather whip. Uh, leather flogger. Let's be a leather accurate. flogger. Um. Uh, God, I'm going to say, I'm going to say that the twelve ended flogger from this from this weird animal stuffer. <laughs> Is going to be fifteen hundred dollars. Oh no! Oh, okay, see now now you're really highballing it. Okay, These ones, wildly enough, the twelve strap is one eighty five. You can get the three oh. strap for fifty. Yeah, Damn. these these are okay. cheap. Um, like I've literally thought about buying them. You would? I totally would. I have, I have outside uses for them, but uh, well, the you would buy them specifically me, from this guy. I mean, of course, yeah. Like, oh, these are very different from your average flogger. Let's say. Like I'm looking at them and they seem I mean, we we will read through his copy, so apparently he's very he cared about the accuracy, so this these must be accurate. But they <laughs> look like no flogger I've ever seen in my entire life. They look very strange. And they don't look okay. like what you would think of when you're envisioning the the, the persecution of, of our Lord. And they're not like the ones that are in the Passion of the Christ either. So hey. Well, it's not I mean I didn't see Passion of the Christ, but whatever. You should see uh, not yeah. not not the not the issue right now. Uh, the thing that's kind of fascinating though is the three strap is fifty, the nine strap is ninety nine, the six strap is one forty five, and the twelve strap is one eighty five. Don't know why that is, but so uh, this is the first thing on the page after the prices. Warning number one: this page is not for sissies, cowards, or those who are easily offended. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa! Hold, Joel, you're coming in hot, bud. Warning Wait number two. Do not Sissies. read any further if you don't have enough guts to face some politically incorrect ancient truths. Still uh-huh. reading? I salute you. Now let's see how honest you can be. <laughs> what wow. a what a gauntlet he throws down there. Derek, do you think that us and our, our listeners are sissies, cowards, or easily offended? Um <laughs> oh, maybe. <laughs> Cause well, I, I, I wanna I wanna see what this guy throws down because that's like some, like th- this guy sounds about like he's about to launch into like a Comedy Central half hour from 1994. <laughs> so I want to see where this goes. Okay, we're not going to read all of it because um, I believe I pasted it into Microsoft Word, and it's like it's like 15 pages. Like I'm oh, not shit. joking. It's ridiculous. But uh, we'll get we'll get the the feeling of it. Let's say. <laughs> Did you notice the eagle in the picture with the whip? If you thought it was stuffed or maybe a live eagle, guess again. Appearances can be very deceiving. At least you would not be as mistaken as the two fishing game officers who confiscated one of my legal eagles, believing it was oh a real God. taxidermy bald eagle. This story he also told on the eagle page, by the way. I know, I remember. Of course. Of course, they apologetically returned it to its owner after test- testing it at the Smithsonian in D.C. The reason the eagle is pictured with the whip, with the whip is to ask you one simple question. If my eagles are fair reproductions, do you think it is possible I might know something about making accurate reproductions? You might not. If that slight possibility exists, cut me some slack and finish reading this page before you decide. So let's cut him some slack. Let's let's read a little bit more. Unless thy is a coward. <laughs> for 26 years, I have been making a living producing a variety of expensive reproductions for the interior design and gift markets. My reproductions of a Roman uh, flagrum are not only much more affordable, they are my most accurate reproductions to date. Believe it or not, designing an accurate reproduction of a Roman scourging whip is much harder than making a remote control eagle, which appears so lifelike they have fooled audiences into believing that they were watching a real eagle on stage. 
I can't believe he's really got to hammer that down. (laughs) Since you don't know me from Adam, maybe I should start by telling you the reason I started trying to replicate one of these brutal ancient Roman scourging whips. Years ago, and this next word is bolded for some reason. Is it a sex thing? I bet it's a sex thing. Uh, you know, if you read between the lines. Years ago, I was channel surfing and caught just part of a message by a TV preacher talking about Jesus Christ being flogged by a Roman cat of nine tails. He described the whip as a nine-strap, lead-tipped whip embedded with nails, glass, and bone. That caught my attention. I had never heard that before. He stated that Jesus had lost so much blood from the scourging, he was too weak to carry his own cross. I didn't believe him. I thought he was exaggerating the truth. I had grown up in church. I had been to Sunday school. I had never once seen a picture of that kind of whip he was describing. Maybe you are like me and have seen hundreds of paintings of Jesus nailed to a cross with a little blood trickling from his hands, head, and feet. Like you, I had never even seen one Jesus movie or passion play where his back was torn to pieces. I didn't know the first century historian Flavius Josephus noted that certain rebel Jews were torn to pieces by the scourge before being crucified. And he cites his source there, so I appreciate that. We're going to skip ahead just a touch uh, because he goes much longer into that. And he says, the first thing you need to understand about Roman scourging whips is these whips were used primarily as torture instruments to extract information. Um, He quotes from some people. If the victim did not tell the Romans what they believed to be true, the scourging continued. There seems to be no limit as to how many lashes the Romans could give. I quote from... Oh, that, that previous part was a quote from Science and Law 1970, The Legal and Medical Aspects of the Trial and Death of Christ. I apologize. He was not very good at, at citing that. But <laughs> You win some, you lose some. If you question whether modern-day commentators are exaggerating the damage inflicted on the victim, I quote a third-century historian, Eusebius of Caesarea. Their bodies were frightfully lacerated. Christian martyrs in Samirna were so torn by the scourge that their veins were laid bare and the inner muscle sinews, even entrails, were exposed. Gross. This is a lot of background for him yeah. to say these whips are not intended for just looking at in some museum. The sharp glass and nails embedded in the acorn-sized lead tips are meant to be felt. If seeing a picture is worth a thousand words, touching the sharp glass, nails, and jagged sheep bone speaks volumes. Most people, including Christians, who have heard about Jesus being scourged are shocked when they see these whips up close. In my seven years of researching Roman whips... I am apparently the only one in the world who makes a testable slash demonstrable reproduction of a Roman flagrum that can be swung by a 12-year-old girl and still do all the horrific damage the ancient secular historians describe. Oh boy. Which is quite the claim. Derek, how are you feeling so far? Uh, I'll level with you. I don't feel great. (laughs) I don't like this at all. Has he sold you on this? Well, he's done the opposite one might say, because I don't want to buy one of these. <laughs> I don't even want to look at one of these. I was I was content knowing that these didn't exist, but then you had to go fuck that up for me. He goes into very in-depth as to how he decided that his scourging whip should be the way it is, how it should look, all that kind of stuff. He mentions that archaeologists have never found a Roman scourging whip, okay. which all right. I think speaks for itself. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, so he goes very in-depth into this. Uh, He says, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see why the scriptures tell us Jesus of Nazareth could not carry his cross. Fair. But, even though some of my reproductions are displayed in museums, that is not the intended purposes. 
Most of the whips I have sold go to pastors, teachers, and lay ministers who use them to help others get a better grasp of the great price the King of Jews was willing to pay for our sins, mistakes, weaknesses, sicknesses, and disease. It is amazing Inverted to watch lukewarm Christians. pastors and <laughs> Sunday school teachers or whatever. Yeah, all right, cool, whatever. It is amazing to watch lukewarm Christians, know-it-all teenagers, and even hardened sinners reevaluate Jesus Christ's scourging after they see these whips. They are shocked, to put it mildly. After seeing the positive impact these reproductions make, some pastors will even do a simple demonstration. <laughs> oh, no. So, number one. Do some jackass shit in front of the congregation? <laughs> number one. It is vitally important to start the demonstration by reminding women that Jesus told the crowds of women who actually saw him after he was scourged not to weep for him. Remind them that Jesus asked his followers to remember his body broken for them, his blood poured out for them, he did the hard part, all he asked is for us to understand what he did. If most women and teenagers can watch Mel Gibson, oops, William Wallace, die bravely in the movie Braveheart, <laughs> why should they object to watching what a few lashes from a Roman whip can do to a cardboard box? The hours of torture Jesus went through making make Braveheart look like a sissy in comparison. Which is great. Good to know. Oh, um, and he, he suggests putting a 35 to 50 pound weight inside a cardboard box so it mo- won't move when you hit it, filled with beans, rice, etc., uh, set it on a table about three feet high. Invite everyone to imagine. This is step three. Invite everyone to imagine just for a moment that they are Jesus. Step four, ask the audience to answer one simple question. Do you think, and I'm going to emphasize the words that he emphasizes here. Okay. Do you think maybe Jesus might have your best interest in his heart? This is a good place to remind them. Jesus had said he had options, which no other scourged men has ever had. Jesus said... No man takes my life from me. I lay it down for myself. John 10, 18. Do you think he was lying? After Peter cut off a temple guard's ear trying to resist Jesus' arrest, Jesus commanded him to put away your sword and then explained with just one simple question. Don't you know I could call 12 legions of angels as he puts the guy back ear on? Guy's ear back on. Well, he said the first thing I said, actually. He wrote the first thing I said. Step five is hit the hard, cardboard box hard um, and repeat the question. Do you think maybe Jesus might love you over and over again? And then step six is simply repeat step five several more times, depending on which whip you purchase, until the beans just start pouring out. <laughs> Derek, <laughs> I, I will say, here's two things. Number one just is two. I'm... Just, just two. Just number one is I'm very glad that he's not using it on a person. <laughs> he's not telling you, use this on a human being. Because I feel like that would be ill-considered. I feel, yeah, that could... Uh... By the sounds of it, it could uh, definitely uh, do some damage. Number two is I'm also a little sad he doesn't do that because I don't feel like watching a cardboard box get tore up is going to be the most effective version of this demonstration. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll, I'll level with you. I thought for like a split second, and then I thought better of it, but that there was like a 10% chance that this dude was like, like you know, ha- if if you buy this whip, suffer as Jesus did. <laughs> You know, take take an L for the team. The team being humanity. I, I feel like so. I haven't read this for a little bit. I could have sworn that the previous version of this did actually ask you to use it on someone, like someone who volunteered. Obviously, wasn't like, hey, just pick someone from the crowd. But if someone was like, oh, I'm like I'm as strong as Jesus. <laughs> if someone was like, I'm as strong as Jesus. I don't believe he like was in that much pain. You pull him up and you hit him like once or twice, and then they're like, oh, huh, huh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so. I have conflicted feelings about this whole page. I recommend everyone go to it. Um, it is Nature's Designs Online is one of my favorite websites. It's one of the best oh my websites. God. In the world. 
I don't know how to feel about that. I don't know what Joel Mark Donahue gets up to in his own time, but I thank him for everything he does for us as uh, in a way he's like, he's like our Jesus. Uh, Yours. Maybe Uh, um, so much to check his back. Isabel, I enjoy doing this podcast with you. I do. I really do. Uh, I, a lot of it baffles me, but I do genuinely enjoy uh, recording this program. And in my head, whenever we start the show, the fates spin this giant wheel and each like, like the fucking wheel of fortune wheel. And each, each there's like 20, 25 little segments. And one of them, the one it landed on today is fucked up church. Well, we go into that more often than not. Let's say, I feel like the past couple episodes have all had fucked up church as a sub theme running through them. <laughs> it's just a little more direct in this one. Um, and we'll continue <laughs> throughout the films. Uh, yeah, because turns out that's a subject people return to. <laughs> Uh, what is this podcast, Eric? Oh, man. Okay, so what the hell is this show? Well, aside than being a, a chronicling of fucked up church, um, this is ostensibly a movie podcast. Uh, back in the, um, what feels like uh, the forever ago year of 2018. The halcyon days of 2018. You came up to me and said, hey, I got, th- I, I put the top 250 movies of the internet movie databases, top 250. I put all the movies in that list in a bracket. Uh, you want to do something with that? Maybe a podcast? And I was like, yes. And so our quixotic quest to crown the greatest movie of all time, Asterisk, began. Uh, so we have 250 movies plus uh, three ringers each that were hovering around the bottom. They have the same score, roughly the same score and vote totals as the uh, movies in the regular list. So that's 256 movies in a single elimination bracket. And we... Basically, just do a single elimination tournament until we get to the very, very, very end. Right now, we're in the thick of round one. Uh, we're the only two people doing this, so it needs to be uh, repeated because I've got a feeling this might come and play a little later. Uh, we have vetoes for when we don't agree. Um, oh, I, I don't like that foreshadowing at all. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just putting it out there because I'm still chewing on some things. How many vetoes um, do each of us have left? We have, we've each used one or have I used two? I think you used two. I've used one, and you've used two. Which means I know one I was have... for your name. One was for Raging Bull. What was my other one uh-huh. for? I believe it was. Uh, was it Three Idiots? Oh yes, it was Three Idiots. Correct. Okay. Yes, so those are the two I've used. So, uh, so in case we disagree and we can't untangle that particular knot, we can force a uh, a uh, a movie through, and they do stack. Uh, yes. Which is correct, right? Yes, uh, so like if I do one, you can do another one over that and you would win, unless I did my next one over that. Yeah. I doubt uh, that's going to happen, but hey. I don't think it's going to get to that point, but I'm just saying, I'm just reminding people because I haven't said it in a while. I feel, maybe not today, maybe not in two weeks, but uh, 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 just you wait. So we've got two matchups today, as we do every episode. Uh, The winners in today's episode will face each other in round two. Which will happen eventually, I guess. We're getting there. We're, we're, getting we're there. almost halfway through. We're almost halfway through. Uh, in two more episodes, we will have finished 50% of the first round, which means we'll have finished a quarter of the podcast. That is how math works. That is how math works. So today's matchups. Uh, we've got The Kid, another one with Bruce Willis, the one with Charlie Chaplin, versus Gone with the Wind, and The Green Mile versus Diabolique, a.k.a. Les Diaboliques. The 1996 American psychological thriller film by Jeremiah Chechik. Huh. Oh, right? uh, that's, one, that's the one we watched? 
Oh, uh, no, we watched the Clouseau one from 1950. Oh, just so we're clear. Well, Wait. I watched the one with Sharon Stone and Isabella Johnny and Chaz Palminteri. One of those people <laughs> was in The Oogie Loves and the Great Balloon Adventure, but I'll let the listeners figure that out for themselves. It's a little, little, this little is treat. A second, this is the second time we've invoked Oogie Loves on the pod. <laughs> oh, shit, you're right. Didn't, wasn't it last week we talked about it last? No, 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 no. We have an episode where I think there was a movie with Carrie Elwes. Yes, uh, I, I was thinking last week I was hanging out with um, my girlfriend and uh, we mentioned Carrie Elwes and I, I told her all about Oogie Loves. That's what you can get if you date me. Information <laughs> about Oogie Loves and the Big Balloon Adventure. Um, Which is yes. one of the most addled films I've ever seen in my entire life. Highly recommended. I have multiple posters for it. Uh, we, we navigate this world in different ways, as well. To be fair, I got those for free from uh, Jen. Because she used to work in a movie theater. And and, and they, they never actually showed Oogie Loves, but they got the posters for it. And they were like, no one wants these. And she was like, I'll take them. And I think brought them I home. I might know someone who wants those. Yes. Uh, all right. So should we just jump into uh, our first matchup of the evening? Or, well, we're recording at night, so I guess it's the evening. Whatever time it is. Time is, time, uh, time is an illusion. Uh, oh, yeah. So uh, the 98 seed, the kid... Uh, written and directed by one Charles Chaplin, released in 1927. Or not 1927, 1921. Um, I'm sorry, I was I, I misread the date of the re-release of the score of the film, which was released re-released in 1972. Um, uh, written and directed by Charlie Chaplin, starring Charlie Chaplin, Jackie Coogan, and Edna Purviance. Cost a quarter million dollars to make, made uh, nearly five and a half million dollars in pre-depression bucks. Uh, was the second highest grossing film of 1921 behind something called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And this actually predates the Oscars. Uh, but uh, it was, um, it was uh, in- it chosen to be preserved in the Library of Congress's National Film Registry in 2011, which makes it exactly as good as Shrek. Uh, versus the 159th greatest film of all time, uh, Gone with the Wind, released in 1939. Uh, directed by Victor Fleming, written by Sidney Howard, based on the book of the same title by Margaret Mitchell, starring Clark Gable, Vivian Lee, Leslie Howard, and Olivia de Havilland. Uh, it was uh, a, a lavish production for the era, three, uh, nearly $4 million cost, uh, grossed nearly, uh, well, a box office take of nearly $400 million. And uh, this one was actually released in the, uh, in the Academy Award era. And it was, uh, let's see, at the twelfth Academy Awards, it set a record, a then record for wins and nomination, uh, winning eight out of thirteen awards: Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, uh, Best Supporting Actress. It was double nominated in that category. Best Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Color Cinematography, Best Editing, and two special uh, awards: one for the uh, production design by William Carlos Menzies, and a Technical Achievement Award uh, given to Don Musgrave and Selznick International Pictures for the pioneering use of coordinated equipment in the production of Gone with the Wind. It was a different time. Also, I do want to say real quick that it technically had two other directors as well because the production of this film was fucking weird. Um, Yeah, Victor Fleming gets the credit. Yeah, but uh, George Cukor and Sam Wood also did some work on it. 
Yeah, George Kuka was fired, and Sam Wood was, uh, and Sam Wood, uh, basically batted cleanup because, uh, I guess it was, I guess filming this was taking its toll on old, old Vic, and he was like, oh, I'm exhausted. Sam Wood, come here. Uh, so, this is an interesting matchup. Because I think, I think exactly this is going to way, go the way I think this is going to go. Like I know what you think yes. of both of these movies, and I know what, I don't what think it's I even think really close. I don't think it's close. So let's start talking about the kid. And I, uh, we've talked, we we've talked and lauded Charlie Chaplin on this show before, uh, and we believe, will do so more, and we will continue to do so. Um, this was his first full length feature, and I felt that it feels like a transitional film. It's still good. Don't get me wrong. It's still good. I would say it's. Of the chaplains we've watched for this podcast and will watch for this podcast, it's the weakest one. I think it might be the weak link. If this is your weak link, you're in good standing. But it definitely feels that it definitely feels like Chaplin has not quite figured out how to make a feature length thing out of the stuff he makes his shorts out of. Yeah, which it's is not to say that there like aren't. There are some incredible moments. Uh, there are some jokes that really land. There's even like some emotional parts that I think do work really well. And I think Jackie Coogan is outstanding. Jackie Coogan is really good. Which is something I don't say for almost any child actor on this podcast. So take that for like the extra praise that it can be. But it is also clearly a little bit stitched together. And it feels also weirdly padded, even though it's only 50 minutes long in the re-release. Did you watch the original cut of the re-release? I watched the 53-minute cut that is on the Criterion channel. Copy. That's the um, 1972 re-release. I guess for that, uh, Chaplin pulled my favorite move, which is he made a new director's cut where it's actually shorter than the original because he thought a bunch of the stuff was a little too sentimental. A little saggy. From on and on. Yeah. So I think he made the right choice because even as is, it is to me, it feels overlong. It feels like it sh- there's a short in here or like 30 minutes in here. And there's a this lot of This is like a 40 padding. minute film. Yeah, sure. There's yeah, there's a lot of shit that I will. Well, we should probably establish what the plot of the kid is. Uh, this will take three sentences. <laughs> um, so there's this lady. She abandons her baby uh, through uh, Cha- Charlie Chaplin esque slapstick. Uh, the tramp finds the baby. Uh, he becomes a surrogate father to the baby. Uh, baby grows up, gets sick, gets taken away, is reunited with the mother. But the ending is ambiguous in a positive way. Is it? I don't know. I I think it's pretty... I think it's completely unambiguous in that clearly the tramp is going to live with this kid. Yeah, I suppose so. I think the... I guess the ambiguity for me comes from like... Like, I guess that to me it's like this is the beginning of a new movie. This is an interesting living arrangement. Certainly. It's very... It's It's a lot like... No, it's not. I, sh- I shouldn't say that. It's a lot like Baps. <laughs> Have you ever seen Baps? It's a lot like Baps. Hey, um, Isabel, why don't you answer that question for for me? Uh, your your favorite movie is Baps. Strike one. Everyone knows what Baps is, right? I don't know. I only know it as a joke. The only time I ever hear people talk about Baps is as a joke because it's like that shitty movie Halle Berry was in. Okay, so it is shitty. But at the same time, okay, I have a certain kind of affection for it because it's directed by Robert Townsend, who I think is... Oh, it's a Robert Townsend joint. Okay. Yeah, I think he is He is a fascinating filmography. I think that there are moments in it that are really, really good. I think Hollywood Shuffle is excellent, and the, and the Meteor Man is pretty darn good, too. And I think a lot of it is shit as well. And in 
<laughs> in ways that don't seem to make a lot of sense, in my opinion. But in the basic premise of BAPS is that um, Martin Landau essentially takes in two black American princesses. That is what BAPS stands for. Martin Landau. Dang. Yeah, Martin Landau. He's, he's an aging millionaire that uh, Halle Berry and Natalie DeSalle, um come in and care for, essentially, in his mansion. And that doesn't seem like it's a premise. I mean, that seems like a premise that's ripe for satire. And if you say that Robert Townsend is at the hell, I'm like, okay, surely. You but would think, right? This movie's not good. No, it's not very good. It is uh, the broadest stereotypes as you can imagine. But we're not talking about BAPS. We're talking about uh, another great comedy Charlie film. Chaplin's the Charlie kid. Chaplin's the kid. Um, I guess, I guess uh, ambiguous is the wrong word. It, it did feel like abrupt. It felt like to me there was like a reel or two missing. It felt like there needed like the wrap up where it was like the tramp and the mother and and the kid. Instead, it just kind of ends. <laughs> and it fe- I felt it was uh, uh, I felt it was like emblematic of the kind of like weird staccato stitched together nature of this movie. Yeah, and even like the the way it's plotted is a little weird. And like there's that long extended section where um, the tramp has like the extended reverie where they're angels. And yeah, the Dreamland sequence. It's like, what the fuck? This is a B-side. What is yes. this? Like, there's not really any jokes in it either. There, there, there's a dog that flies by. That like, adorable. I think it's like, I think it's like we got these harnesses, <laughs> so like, we, we gotta well use, use them. them. What are we gonna do? Not use all the equipment on the set? I mean, hey, he needed to have that scene because that's where he met his future wife. Oh boy! When she was twelve <laughs> years old. When she was twelve years old. <laughs> but. Don't worry, uh, people. Like, he he wasn't a creep. They didn't actually start fucking till he was till she was fifteen. So it's it's oh fine. Boy. It's fine. Oh boy! Chaplin hey, Charlie Chaplin was young. a fucking creep, huh? Ugh. Yeah, but it, it's like it's like the character that she plays. Like she has like a bow that's not the tramp, and that dude looks like he's forty five. <laughs> so yes. I don't know what the fuck. I I don't know how people were living in the fucking early thirties, but. Mm, I think even I in the early thirties, that. that was a little that was a little sus. A little, a little louche. <laughs> I, I think, I, I think deeply sus. immoral is the better way to say it. But hey, deeply immoral. Yeah, because louche is like I was gonna say Serge Gainsbourg, but no, that's pretty. That's also pretty immoral in its own uh, ways. What's something that's louche but not immoral? Um, Richard Cheese. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think that 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 works. Richard Cheese. Who Unless in the Richard audience knows who the fuck Richard of. Cheese and Lounge Against the Machine is? Hey, I l- listen. I can do some weird pulls too. This is not just your department. No, I appreciate it. I I, I appreciate Richard Cheese. Also, he looks a lot like Tom Lennon, which is something I think of whenever I see him. <laughs> oh man, Tom Lennon. Tom Lennon is weird because I've I've never seen any of his comedy, but he's always in things that sucks. <laughs> like he's like he's you, like you never perfect... saw Reno Nine One One or the State. No, I saw like. I forgot that he was a member of the state. I didn't. I saw like the odd sketch. Never actually sat down and watched whole episodes. No, it's like Tom Lennon is a guy that like I know is funny. I know his credentials, but his IMDb list is dog shit. Uh, hmm, hmm. I'm not sure. I entirely agree. Like, <laughs> I'm looking at it again, and I will say that let, let's say most of these don't show off his talents. Um, okay. All right. Sure. But. There's a lot of good movies in here, uh, I will say. I didn't, well, I didn't say that it was all bad. Like, uh, he was in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie that I think is actually not bad at all. He was okay. in 17 again, uh, which is pretty good. The, the, Z- the Zac Efron joint? Yeah, it's pretty good. 
Uh, he was in I Love You Man, a very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas. Like these are some good. He was in Tinkerbell and the Legend of the Never Beast, and we know how much I stand the Tinkerbell movies. He was in, he was in Knight of Cups. He is a Terrence Malick actor. As Tom, I remember that was one of the. I I very rarely get like jarred by casting choices in Malick movies, even though he makes some weird ones. That was one of the ones where I was like, like, is that is that Tom Lennon? That's that's weird. <laughs> Why is he here for two seconds? Is it like Patty Smith in Song to Song? She's a big part of that too. Fuck. Like she's she she um I want to say her and someone date for a little bit or no no maybe she just has like a speaking role for a while. I, I haven't seen she, Song to Song in a while. Just around. It's a great film. Um, it's it's I the, think the Tom, third best Malick film. That's, while we're pulling okay. hot takes out. I think Tom Lennon's been in a lot of movies that people stand. Herbie fully Let's loaded put it that way. Like yeah, I mean nothing really like yeah he's in a lot of movies that I think have Rocky and passionate Bellingle? fans. Yeah, and this is a lot of good I know, movies. I, I, I kind of want to like sl- st- let's do a new podcast where we I'll watch st- every movie that Thomas Lennon was ever in. Oh boy, we can rewatch Memento. Is he in there? Yeah, he's the doctor for like two seconds, which is something he does oh, a lot. Cool. Just like a sp- yeah, okay. How can we rewatch Memento? I like that. Memento, I like that movie. We could watch Hot Tub Pie Machine and Cedar Rapids. I don't know. A lot of these movies sound like dog shit, Isabel. <laughs> The the Hunger Pains, um, which is a short film, um, that is the, the 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 third parody of the Hunger Games that I've heard about. I watched two of them. One was like the Starving Games, and one was oh okay. gosh, why can't I remember this? Um, one was by because Fried- it doesn't Fried- matter. No, one was by Friedman Friedberg and Seltzer or Friedman and Seltzer. Who are, what is their name? The the bad. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I know. I, I think I think I think I want to say it's Fried Friedman. We get to go. We get to talk the about of Charlie Chaplin. Friedberg and Seltzer. Friedberg. Uh, yes. Um, and so it was the Starving Games. And I can't remember what the other one. Oh, the Hungover Games is the other one. And uh, I will say the Hungover Games is the better of the two if you're going to watch a loose pop culture parody of the Hunger Games. Absolutely no one listening will do <laughs> And And, and <laughs> I will say the, the Hungover Games at least has a fun gimmick where it's like the cast of the Hangover are in the Hunger Games. That's, that's its thing. Still not good. That sounds like dog shit. It's real bad. But it's by the guy who directed Crawl Space in 2013. So, hey. Not the one with Klaus Kinski, but... The corpse of Klaus Kinski in Crawl Space. <laughs> You've seen Crawl Space, the one with Klaus Kinski, where he plays, like, a Nazi? It was given to me... It was um, recommended to me with a giant asterisk. Yeah, it was, that's about right. I was right. like, this movie's not good, but Kinski is on one. Like, more than usual. I think that that's accurate. Um, <laughs> but we aren't, we aren't talking about... No, uh, we, I'm sure we'll have time to talk about Klaus Kinski later if we're talking about Ultimate. I don't think Kinski like, shows up on this list. Maybe, maybe he does. I, I is Fiscarallo on this list? No, it can't be. Neither is uh, Aguirre or anything like that. Because why would you have good movies on this list? So, There's the kid, on this what list. are we talking about? Should we just skip to Going with the Wind? The kid wins, so it doesn't really matter. We, we can talk about it later. Yeah. I think we can talk about later. I do think Gone with the Wind, while being the inferior film, is the richer text. Oh, Lord. I mean, okay, you're not wrong. I want to hear you out on this, but first let's, let's, when we get to the debate portion of this, let's, Mm. let's first say why Gone with the Wind is a very bad film. Okay, so why why is this movie bad? Uh, Like, like real reasons or like petty cinephile reasons? Um, let's start with the reasons that aren't related to the, like, racism and rape, and let's move to those okay. again later. 
All right. Okay. So racism and rape is okay. So that's all right. Uh, this is four hours long. Yeah, it it and feels it, it is agonizing. It's not like a spry. It's not like a spry long movie, and those exist. I sat through four hours. I sat through. I sat. I watched a four hour long documentary about Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, <laughs> a band I like. Probably not a band I'd watch a four hour documentary about. And it felt like fucking the kid compared to Gone with the Wind. Because Gone with the Wind feels like it's over halfway through as well. Like it, it, um, th- there, yes. it reaches a point where you're like, okay, this movie's done. And then you look at the clock, you're like, wait, there's a lot more of this movie left. What What is going to happen? I don't understand. Yeah, yeah like um, Vivian Lee does the, um, does the like, uh, I'll never go hungry again speech. And it feels like the ending of a movie, but then there's the intermission card. <laughs> Fuck. Which did here's here's a here's a question. Did you watch the entire intermission card? I did I I watched the whole damn thing. With the overture, the on track, the intermission card, the exit music, the whole nine. Wow. You did better All than me. Four hours of Because I skipped over those. Because <laughs> I was like, <laughs> this is just music playing, and uh this was the part I didn't like of seeing uh is it crazy crazy eight? What is that? Hard eight. Hateful eight? Hateful eight. That took a Hateful while to eight. get to. Hard eight is the PTA. Yes. Crazy eight is the game I play with my grandparents. <laughs> but heart, uh, hateful eight. Uh, when I saw hateful eight in the roadshow right. production, the thing I didn't like was the fucking interlude in the middle. Uh, so I just, and that was, that's a good movie. Whereas going with the wind, I was like, I need this to be over quicker. So I'm going to skip <laughs> past this part. And I don't You don't feel... like being able to take a piss in the middle of a movie? I didn't need a piss. I was good. <laughs> I got, I got, well, good for you. I got, I got that bladder game on lock. Yeah, you talked about your bladder pr- uh, previously. Oh yeah, I did. So you then, talked about. Of course you did. Someone that, in that's the very accusatory, Discord, Derek. Come on. Someone, no, I'm just saying. Listen, someone in the fucking Discord made a meme of you talking about your piss. That was me, to be fair. So yeah, because it was it was requested. <laughs> so I made the meme to be a good person and to be a good host. You know, people come into our house, and I feel like I need to like. Do the best I can to make sure they're welcome. Spruce up and the place with urine. Yeah. Um, so Gone with the Wind is incredibly <laughs> long. It's, it really seems long. to recycle the same plot points just over and over and over and over again. And a lot of them mm-hmm. don't... Like, there will be slight variations. Like, hey, this one's before the Civil War. This one's during the Civil War. This one's after the Civil War. But they don't greatly change in the meantime. Which I think that there is a... a lot s- of it- Oops, sorry. No, I was just going to say, a lot of it is, hey, check out the war dead. <laughs> Yeah, which I, I'm conflicted because I think those are some of the more interesting parts of the film in the way 100%. it portrays the Civil War and like the, the fallout of the Civil War. And those are the best uses of the the huge production values. Like It's so overseen to like almost seem to the point of parody or to the point of not really having an impact anymore. But when the camera pulls up and you see that entire street just filled with like people who are dead and dying, it works. Like, that is it's a good. great use of the budget and the production value. This is one thing that I will say sort of unambiguously about this about this film. It looks gorgeous, and the production design is top-notch. So, I will say it looks gorgeous for the first half, and then I, I got so weary of it. Because it doesn't change, like, kinds of gorgeousness. Like, it doesn't have different levels. It doesn't have different well, styles. It just, it's, the first half is very epic and beautiful. And is outside a lot, and the second half tries to transport that into the interior of a very large mansion. 
And let's just say I don't think it works particularly well. Well, this this is the gambit that uh, this is the uh, the perversion that, that Quentin Tarantino had when he did Hateful Eight is that I'm going to use these super wide fucking lenses, but everything's going to happen inside. Not 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 to shit on Gone with the Wind more, but I feel like that's more intentional in the Hateful Eight than it is in Gone with the Wind. I think you're right, um, but. I think that, at least for me, the movie was like equally visually arresting on both sides in the intermission. Uh, and there's the, there's the outside-inside divide, but what I noticed, or what I sort of was glomming onto, was the sort of uh, golden pastoral, golden hour palette of the first part, and like the sort of more gothic, grayer, earthier, foggier uh, mode that the film was operating in in the second part. I appreciate the slack you're giving it there. I, I don't. I, I don't. I don't think you're necessarily wrong, but I will say that um, and any any like if I was actually going to sit down and like analyze this film in, in a deeper way, like for a film class or something like that, yes, I would agree with that. But in the actual act act of watching it for this podcast, it's a long. It's so time. long and it's so exhausting in its length that by the second half, I didn't really have the same. I, I didn't have the ability to like start thinking about it in that way let's say the visual awe was uh too much yes it it, it was it was over at that point and and, and if, if we're talking about things we like i will also say K- clark gable turns out real charming motherfucker charming man yeah good uh good 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 performance a bit i mean he's you hire clark gable you get clark gable yes it's like sean connor <laughs> it's like this is what you're getting um but i i think i, I was talking about someone who like likes this film like 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 likes, not loves, likes, and it's like uh, she told me um, this mo- or I told her in this discussion. This movie is really good when we get away from the characters, <laughs> when yes. no one's fucking saying anything, and we're not focusing on the story. This movie fucking rules. Like when Atlanta, when Atlanta burns, and just shits going down, and people are throwing fucking cannonballs or whatever through like giant stained glass windows at churches this movie cooks when this movie is divorced from its characters and its story it rules but therein lays the problem (laughs) the character and the story and if it if this movie were 90 minutes this would be a bit more forgivable but this movie is like joined at the hip with scarlett o'hara who i have described uh uh here and elsewhere here being just with 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 Isabel in the chat as a Confederate Sundere. <laughs> yes, I feel like if she was going through an arc, it would be different. And I think there's an implication of an arc, and the film sees itself as and her as having an arc. But well, there's an arc; it just sucks. Yeah, she just sucks the entire time, and she sucks in slightly different ways going through it. Maybe, but at the same time, like she is never a pleasant person to be around. She's never an enjoyable presence. At the very least, like Clark Gable also sucks in this movie. We'll get into that in more depth in a moment. But he's at least entertaining. He like says fun things and he has fun turns of phrase and his his personality and, and his charisma like have a draw to them. Whereas mm-hmm. I, I don't think that it's necessarily even Vivian Lee's fault. I think it's just the character no. doesn't have anything there. Because like Vivian Lee is very good in other movies. It's just this one. Yeah, the, I really feel like she's the Academy much to work Award with. winner. Uh, I mean, yeah, the the character is kind of like she inhabits two different characters. There's the because uh, this movie announces right off the bat that like this is a thing that we miss as Southerners, and it's like you miss this gesturing to the 
uh, to the 240 minutes of the movie. These are the last days of gallantry, right? Or something along those lines is what it says? Something along those lines. Uh, a society gone with the wind. Or, or civilization gone with the some, some bullshit like that. In the opening crawl. Which, like, she is... Scarlett O'Hara is a brat from the jump and doesn't become less bratish during the film. You would, Like, this movie has cartoonish histrionic things happen to her in the second half. The the things that befall this poor woman in this movie would be befitting of like some 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 like Victorian gothic shit, you know, like like spoiler alert, or Greek her tragedy. kid breaks her fucking neck and dies. <laughs> which in, in, you know, in the funniest shot in the else, film, which is it shouldn't be that way, but like that shot is so fucking funny. You know why it's funny? Because it's a callback. Yes, it's a callback. It calls back to when her dad dies in the same way. And it's barely That's set it's up, funny. too. Like, they're just chatting, this, and, yeah, and, and the daughter's like, hey, chatting. I'm going to go jump my horse. And then and they're like, be careful. And then she's like, oh my gosh, papa, or whatever she says. And then her, this fucking child attempts to jump a pony over, like, the smallest little thing I've ever seen, and just face plants into the camera. And There's a lot of good stunt work in this film, for what it's worth. Yes, that is not one of them. I mean, listen, you get a good child actor or a good stunt person, you can't get both. Sure. Um, the guy who did pause stunt looked, like, appropriately gnarly. Correct. Isn't there, like, a really, like, gnar... Oh, yeah, someone gets fucking blown away in the fucking face. In yeah, the, in which the I, did, I didn't expect. Movie. Like, I haven't seen it before, and I didn't expect there to be actual blood. Just, you know... Like, a, like we see a face that's been shot into with a pistol, which is... Into, and this is the thing. The movie is good in moments, but... Four hours is that's a lot of turkey to eat. It's a lot of chicken to eat, I guess. A friend of the podcast, Will Sloan, he's not, I've never spoken to the man, um, said, uh, <laughs> said in his letterbox review, as Rossini said of, of Wagner, he has lovely moments and awful quarter hours, which I feel is kind of the most accurate way I feel about this film. Where there, there was moments in the film where I was like, wow, I see what people see in this. This is real good. It's real pretty. It's arresting in its imagery. Cool. And then the rest of the movie would happen around it. I was like, eh. It's like you would, you, you would, like, if the things that happen, this is like a, a failure of screenwriting, a failure of performance. And in some ways, the opulence of the mise-en-scene kind of works against it. The things that happen to Scarlett O'Hara in this film should be guaranteed to make you feel sympathetic towards her. It doesn't. The opulence just kills the sympathy. Yeah. Um. It kills the proximity you would have to this character. This character who is a dickhead and doesn't become less of a dickhead when all these terrible things happen to her. She's a brat until the end. Yeah, and doesn't learn anything. And, like, it's not that I think characters have to learn anything. Like, there can be characters in movies, very good movies, who start the movie and end the movie as a piece of shit. I think Mike Lee's Naked is a very good film in which the main character doesn't really learn anything. (laughs) And that's kind of the point of the movie. But but this isn't the point of the film. No, the, the, the it thesis wants you to empathize with Scarlett O'Hara because she's like sort of the vestigial remain of the, the old South. South. Yes, which I, by the way, um, this is a good way to transition into the more serious problems oh. of this film. And oh, yeah, I found a copy of the opening credits prologue. So let's do it. Th- this this was five minutes into the film. I was like, oh boy, this is what I'm in for, huh? The first thing you see after the credits, directed by Vic. It's not even directed by Victor Fleming. The last credit, I believe, is produced by David O. Selznick. Don't you fucking forget. And then you see. There was a land of cavaliers and cotton fields called the Old South. 
Here in this pretty world, gallantry took its last bow. Here was the last ever to be seen of knights and their ladies fair, of master and slave. Look for it only in the books, for it is no more than a dream remembered, a civilization gone with the wind. Civilization gone with the wind. God damn! Remember the part of this movie where they're reminiscing on things they miss from before the Civil War? (laughs) And one of those things is like the chatter and laughter from the slave quarters? That's a real line in this movie. That's a thing that happens. Like, how is it that Song of the South is never going to be released ever fucking again? But this movie has a thousand releases, is still considered, like, one of the best movies of all time, quote-unquote. And this movie is, like, I'm sorry, this movie is more racist than Song of the South. It's, I think it's it's a lot more insidious. Yes, because, like, the whole point of this film is that, like... Wasn't it great when we had to... Wasn't it great when when we owned people? Yes. Uh, Like, wasn't it great when we owned people? And also, those people are really happy to be owned. We kind of have to talk about Hattie McDaniel, don't we? We do. Um, Hattie McDaniel plays... uh, Is her character name actually... Is her character name actually Mammy? Sure is. (laughs) Um, She plays a Mammy. Academy Award winner for the role. First black woman to win an Oscar. And she, at one point in the film, very later on, she says how honored she is. To have served three different generations of O'Hara's. Which, (laughs) what an insulting thing to say. Like, that that is so far beyond, like, anything else. Like, ugh, it is so aggravating to as you watch it. Because I'm not saying that those people didn't exist. I'm sure there were some slaves who after, like, during Reconstruction were like, I don't know this new life. And I was... Doing well in the old life. I was, I mean, I was a house slave. Things seemed pretty decent for me. And all of a sudden things are very different. And these people who I do have some kind of connection with are no longer my owners. And that's a, that's a very weird dynamic. And that is that would be worth exploring in an entire film. Instead, the entire point of this is that every single black person in the movie, and there's there's really like three black people in this film. Yeah. All of them fucking love Scarlet and fucking yeah. loved slavery. And and one of them is just oh. a fucking joke. Like Butterfly McQueen plays Prissy and she is just Prissy a joke. Su- the, <laughs> Prissy sucks so hard. Uh, Cuz like at, oh, at the very man. least like Hattie McDaniel This is the thing though. This is the thing. This is all, this is all stuff that they were directed to, no doubt. Yes. Uh, like I I I don't blame the actors. Um, sure. And I will say, like, like Hattie McDaniel, I think, tries <laughs> to make this a character. Yes. The problem is, like, what do you do with that role? Like, like, she, listen, well, I, she does... I think she wins the Oscar on the strength of the speech going up the stairs as uh, as uh, as the kid dies. That's where she wins it. I, that is something that could have been cut out or shown visually. <laughs> but they gave Hattie McDaniel, like, five minutes there. And that's the acting solo that gets her the Oscar, I think. But it's yeah, it's it's, it's a nothing. And role. here, here's my other opinion. I think what also gets it is not to sound like Ben Shapiro for a moment, but liberal Hollywood wants to pat itself on the back. And I do think that that's not an insignificant thing. Like you don't actually want like like if if you were a white person in Hollywood in the 1930s, you don't want an actual, you don't want to actually care about black people, obviously. But you might want to make it look like you are caring enough to like give best supporting actress to one of them, even though like the black 
um, performers couldn't actually go to the premiere of the film. Uh, yeah, because of segregation. It's 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 Green Book, but for 1939. Oof, that's a tough. That's a tough L to cop. Sh- should we get more into the racism, or is that pretty clear? Should should we get into like the rape at this point? I mean, I feel like if we we could talk more about it, but I feel like we we're, we're just spinning our wheels in the mud. I mean, yeah, like we've already, like people get it. It's not good. It's it's pretty radioactive. It's it, it's pretty, but radioactive, like a mushroom cloud. It is so much more racist than I thought it would be. I'll just say that. I really didn't think. Like, with, for a movie that still has the acclaim it has. So do, you want, do, do, do you want to talk about uh, Clark Gable's sex offender for a second, or are we sure? Good? I mean, I mean I'll, I'll just say real quick that this film does the classic Hollywood thing of um, a man basically forcing a, his wife back to their bedroom to fuck her, which is rape. And she has a baby from that. Oh, what what a beautiful like the movie does not portray this as like like I thought for a moment. Oh, the movie knows this is scary and this is terrifying because like the scene before that, Rhett, but- Rhett Butler really seems scary. Clark Gable really seems scary. It kind scary. of is because like the room and the staircase is not lit. The staircase is lit a little bit, and the going and the stairs kind of disappear in kind of like chiaroscuro. So it does look really scary. But cut to opulent bedroom. And like like and, pretty music and like not minor key music. This is major and key she, music. Yeah, and she, she is like, is like hell yeah. Feeling. I just got fucked so good. And maybe that shouldn't be a thing in a film. And I mean, we'll talk about this eventually when we talk about Blade Runner, which is my favorite movie of all time. That maybe has some issues there, but I think this is even more egregious. This is kind of my point in this regard. It's like lots of movies we like have, let's say, less than wholesome things in it. But the concentration and duration of this particular film kind of is like, uh, what do you want me to do with this, boss? Yeah. Four hours of praising the Old South is a lot. It's a tough look. Yeah. I would say if, if, you're gonna, if you were thinking of watching Gone with the Wind, just watch Russian Ark because it's only like 90 minutes. It's just as reactionary and just as bad, but at least you won't waste a full four hours with it. Oh, man. So... Get out of here, Gone with the Wind. Oh, are you, are you kicking what it? You are. Okay, here. I, th- I thought that you were going to say, because it's a ri- richer text, that we were going to move forward with it. It's a richer text, but that doesn't mean that it's a better movie. <laughs> no, I agree. It is. Uh, I, I just figured, you know, we already have, I think we already have two uh, chaplains moving forward. Probably a third one with The Great Dictator, unless it's up against something really, really good. Uh, yeah, The Great Dictator is uh, uh, an early favorite. Let's put it that way. But yeah, I, I would agree. The Kid... Is the kid moves up. better? The kid stays in, in the picture. The bracket. You've listened to the audiobook of that, right? I have not. Uh, it's read by Robert Evans, and he sounds like he's drunk the entire time. It's great. Highly recommend. Wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> uh, so that being said, we've got ourselves another another matchup. Oh boy, I we didn't we want to make these shorter? <laughs> I mean, in theory, yes. Okay, I can cut. I mean, I. Th- I, th- I think you need to be a bit more aggressive with the uh, w- with the old editing snips. We'll see. All right, so because I don't know the the fans like them long and they like them digressive, so so I don't they're know. Not, they're not the only ones who like things long. Hey oh, <laughs> talking about penises. I was uh, yeah yeah. We're gonna talk about the, the, we're gonna talk about the Green Mile, but just not the movie. <laughs> Is that the Hulk's penis? Yeah, it's the Hulk's penis. That's the, the or, or the Jolly Green, green Giant. Ho, ho, ho. Green Jolly mile. Green Giant. Oh no! 
Um, we're gonna no, because if you find some, I'll have to see it. I, you know what? I'm gonna be nice and not link this to you. Um, Thank you. I appreciate it. But in one of them, he is fucking the Land of Lakes woman. So the Land, the Land of Lakes butter lady. Okay. Yeah. Uh oh boy, that oh god. So, so with that, uh, our next matchup: two films that are shorter than Gone with the Wind. Sure are. First up, we have. The 31 seed, the 31st best film of all time, The Green Mile, released in 1999, uh, directed by Frank Darabont, uh, written by Frank Darabont, based on The Green Mile by Stephen King, starring Tom Hanks, David Morse, Bonnie Hunt, Michael Clark Duncan, James Cromwell, Michael Jeter, Graham Greene. There's a lot of great actors in this movie. Like, I'll, I'll keep it there, but it goes on for a while. This movie's got a deep bench. $60 $60 million budget, $287 million take, and went 0 for 4 at the Academy Awards. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Michael Clark Duncan, and Best Sound. Versus the 226th seed, the 226th Best Film of All Time, Diabolique, a.k.a. Les Diabolique, uh, released in 1955. Uh, directed by Henri-Georges Clouseau, written by Henri-Georges Clouseau and Jérôme Jérôme based on She Who Was No More, by the writing team known as boileau Narcejac, uh, starring Simone, uh, Simone Signoret, Vera Clouseau, uh, Paul Meurice, and Charles Vanel. I don't really have deets as far as budget goes. It won uh, the Best Foreign Film Award from the New York Film Critics Circle in 1955, for what that, what uh, that's worth. But uh, let's just say that it's a movie that it doesn't have the longest cultural tale, uh, but it's it's a beloved '50s thriller. Let's put it that way. I mean, it was uh, beloved enough that Criterion did a release of it, so it also has that that clout. Let's say it's got it, it, yeah, it's got uh, it's in the Criterion collection, so it's got that shine on it. So Diabolique is a nasty little thriller-shaped object that uh, Alfred Hitchcock wanted to get his hands on. We can see why, but couldn't because. Henri-Georges Clouseau does not give a shit about your feelings. <laughs> uh, and and I think you pointed out that he also likes to make his wife cry on film. <laughs> that, that seems to be the main thing that Vera Clouseau... Vera Clouseau? Is that yeah. approximately? Yeah, Clu- you can say Clouseau. I prefer... I'm fine. Ver- Vera Clouseau, as Vera the Clouseau, American yeah. says, um, seems to exist for one thing in uh, these movies, and that is to look frightened and sad. Which, she, here's the th- she she has she's, she's perfectly very, fine at that she's she's uh, she's a very attractive woman and and she's often plays she i've se- i've seen 66 percent of her filmography which is to say the two of the three films she was in before she died tragically in 1960 of a heart attack oh my god oh that's that's creepy i know that's like that's like like genuinely a little unsettling uh but yeah she was in the wages of fear where um, she did a really good impression of a cat early on in the film. <laughs> yes. And she's in this, in the uh, one of the co-leads, along with Simone Signore. And she, her job is look innocent and be frightened. Because this, this movie has a lot of, like, 50s noir shorthand. Because you've got, like, uh, the butch blonde with, like, the short-cropped hair, who wears, like, what looks like a pantsuit, even though it's not who's like mean and assertive. And then you've got like the mousy, brown-haired, pigtailed, pious lady, who's a bit more weedy, but has a lot of rage inside her. <laughs> I I was really interested by that dynamic starting, starting out, because 
I had never seen this film before. I knew what the twist was just neither, because neither of I. I, 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 I live knew, in the world. I knew what the twist was, but I didn't know what the second twist was. Uh, yes, yes, I agree with that. But um, so, so yeah, like I knew the twist. I'd never seen the actual full film, and the entire time I'm like, like, like Vera Cluzo clearly in my brain. I'm like. There's something else going on there. Maybe she's actually the bad person. Maybe there's something that she's not telling Simone Signore. Like, like there's there's another level, and that never really mm-hmm. arrives, which is a little disappointing to me. Like, I think that for what the film has her do, that Clouseau is good in it, but she doesn't have her do much. Like, it gives all the interesting stuff to Simone Signore. Like, she's it so does. much more of an interesting character, and like she, also she more is. of a magnetic screen presence. But like, listen, spoilers for this movie. We're going to do the thing that the title card at the end says we shouldn't do. Yes. Which I appreciated that title card. It was a really good card. We bl- we blow the spoiler horn. Spoilers for Diabolique. Skip ahead to the end of the show. Or skip ahead a while until we start talking about the Green Mile. Um, so, Veracluza, in order to pull off the feat that she has masterminded, has had to, has had to have pulled a long con years before this movie even fucking starts she has to fake being uh having a bum heart so i think she's been playing the long con for like a decade and i think her character becomes stronger in retrospect it's this thing where the movie snaps into focus at the end once and then snaps into focus even more right at the end and it just basically makes the whole last hour and change better you know what derek I will say you just brought this movie up in my estimation. I really like now that you're saying it that way. I really thought that the boy saying that he saw Christina was just supposed to be like, oh, like spooky. And I didn't Mm -hmm. really, I I didn't, I didn't realize, oh no, she is actually still alive. And that it like totally makes sense now that you say it. I don't know how I didn't get that. (laughs) Um, Because the way she dies is hilarious. It is pretty hilarious. She gets she gets she just to kind death. of she just kind of coils like a question mark and just keels over. You know the movie Let's Scare Jessica to Death. It's like that, uh-huh. except her name is Christina. Sure, exactly. <laughs> um, but no, okay. Now that you said that, I, I like that quite a bit. Cool. So into it that ho- so that like, think, that just yeah. brought us up into like a huge estimation. Like, thank you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Um, no, I mean, I was like. I was watching, but, but, but I was watching right. like, like like you said that like oh that brings up like the whole previous like hour and a half it totally does like I'm having that moment now where I was like oh okay like it's a movie where like the the mistress and the husband conspired against the wife cool and which makes more sense yes than the other way around but it also like makes all the characters less rich than they are with the second part which is that she's still alive and she was actually doing a whole con the entire time yes I'm not sure to what end, but I think I think that um, Paul Maurice's character, uh, what's his name, Monsieur uh, Monsieur Monsieur de la Salle, he is so evidently a Awful. shithead. Yes, he is from the word go. He is cartoonishly rude and mean and abusive. It's like like literally like within the first ten minutes, we see him as both a physically abusive and sexually abusive person. He, there and is, psychologically abusive. Yes, there's like, nothing redeeming fish, about him. That sucks. Yeah. Nothing. Not a thing. Um, so that tells me that that uh, Christina has an inkling that's like, oh, this is... I, I could easily 
imagine in like the fiction of my imagination a situation where uh where they get married and he immediately turns heel and he's got her under his thumb and he just starts being an asshole and and she needed a way out of that so and she plays the long con okay i think she, i think he she realizes at some point that he's having an affair and thinks there it is there's my out so that was a fun because- revelation for me to have uh, but I will say, even on the old reading of the film, I liked it quite a bit because um, Clouseau is really good at that whole tension and like thriller part of things, which we learned from uh, The Wages of Fear. Yeah, The Wages of Fear, which is also wonderful. Um, I feel like this movie has less dead air than The Wages of Fear. Like we talked about, I mean, you were a big fan of the early part of Wages of Fear, um, where I thought it was a little bit kind of like, okay, let's mm-hmm. get to the thing. I get it. Whereas this movie, I liked the setup a little bit more. I think this is actually a better film than The Wages of Fear overall. And the tension of it feels... Pretty neck and neck for me. Okay. But the tension of it feels both... It's less intense, but it also stays longer. Like, there's not really a release to the tension. It just keeps building and building and building. Everyone says that this is a psychological horror film. And yeah, I could see that. Yeah. It's much more of a horror film than a thriller. Yeah. And I think there's like... There's intimations of supernatural things going on, which I think are like, even though I knew the twist already and I knew that there wasn't actually something supernatural going on, it was still very like spooky to see like the, the, the husband's face in that school picture, like mm. hiding behind the glass. That's a very like unsettling image or just having this boy say like, oh, the, the headmaster like is punishing me and the headmaster who they think is dead. Yeah. Good. Good movie. Yeah, I liked this it. Movie, this movie, I like at times, like this is not a Jalo film at all. It's in black and white. It's a lot more of a sort of a clean thriller. But it's, it's very lurid, large. though. But it has, you. I think you could make a case that this is like a proto Jalo. Like it's got the sort of supernatural element. It's got the luridness. Um, it doesn't have the body count of like uh, uh, of a Jalo film. Uh, certainly doesn't. Uh, it, but it has kind of like the the skeeziness a little bit. It has it has the fucking close up of a glove towards the end. I feel like this might have been an influence further down the line, deeper into Europe. I didn't expect watching uh, Michelle the the husband's body being pushed under the water to be as That's like like up. visceral as it was. But it's really like it feels very physical and not just staged and not just someone acting. It's like, oh god, she's like pushing a dude underneath the water and holding him there. And then they get a heavy brass piece from the mantle to make sure that he stays underwater. What a thing. Yeah, and it's like um there's no score during any of this. It's just the sloshing of water. Yeah. I liked that luridness quite a bit. I think I think it like it gave the film a much different texture than I thought it was going to have when it started. It felt very a little bit more more classical when it started but it gave it an edge yeah like uh that moment when there's the drunk who's trying to like catch a ride in their car as they're taking this dead body back to the uh the school and they get the drunk out of the car and you just see that there's blood in the backs in like that back and obviously it's in black and white so it's not like bright red but you can see the wetness of it and almost it almost looks kind of sticky and it's in a movie where there isn't really any other blood. It it was very impactful to me. Yeah, this is that last little set piece where uh, where Veracluzo is doing like the sort of they're like, oh, I'm being followed. Ah, what's going on? And again, with with that sort of second twist, it's like, who's she doing that performance for? She's doing it for the other guy that she knows is alive still. Yes, 
oh man 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 what a good movie <laughs> yeah it turns out that uh it's that that diabolique one of them like let's be honest like one of the most acclaimed horror films that there is especially in the 50s at the very least yeah one of the great one of the great thrillers as well yes is a is a very good movie <laughs> and also uh i want to point out that there's like strong uh i said this in my letterbox review there's strong colombo energy coming off of uh, charles vanel hell yeah or charles vanel yeah which it's i loved like, this it's like this guy is like doing the colombo thing and it rules like one, one more question just like like it's so good. Uh, I just also we should just watch all. We should have a podcast. Where we watch all of Columbo. Columbo's wonderful. It's like he like fucking first twist happens. Uh, Michelle and uh, fuck, what's her face? Um, Nicole. Uh, fucking Michelle and Nicole are like are like making out, and it's like let's leave right now or whatever. And then fucking dude gets us in and makes like a joke. Yeah, it's like oh yeah, let, let's get out of here. <laughs> like oh. Uh, uh, what a great, what a great guy. Love him. It's like, it's, it's something like, how much time do we have? And then he comes in, it's like, ah, oh, 15 to 20 years, depending on the judge. And yeah. it's like, ah! Oh! <laughs> and it's like, I, you know you know what? I'll take this opportunity to say this because it happened while I was watching this movie. I love getting had by a movie. Yes, yes. Like, in, 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 in like an honest way. In like, uh, in like a, a mystery book kind of way. And it's like, being legitimately pleasantly surprised by a twist or an occurrence. That rules. The, the, those twists have so many like like really cool levels to them because there's the twist where the husband's still alive, which I even if I didn't know, I would kind of expect. Like, okay, that makes sure. sense. And then there's a twist that uh, Simone Signore is in on it, which okay, cool, got it. And then there's a twist that um, this police detective wasn't looking at Christina at all. He was basically just waiting for these two to spring their trap and. Which, which is really well deployed because I didn't even uh, question it. I was like, oh, of course, he, he, he's, he's following Christina because clearly she's being very suspicious and she's doing very strange things. And that's what he's implying the entire time. And nope, turns out that he, he was smarter than me and he already knew what was going on. Um, yeah, and it's like, trust, and he says in the fucking cab, trust the process. I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. And he's then, not following her because she he thinks she's the perp. He's following her because she's acting like a fucking victim, which she is. And then step back again, and all of a sudden, oh shit, Christina wasn't a victim. She knew. I mean, she was a victim in like the the sense of like her husband's the broader sucks, sense, yeah, in the broader sense. But in terms of like how the scheme was working out, she was on a different. She was on another step that the other two weren't on yet. Now she was playing chess while they were playing checkers. It's great. <sighs> Good movie. Great movie. So let's talk about the Green Mile. I will say, like, this is we start, I think it's really interesting that the Green Mile and Diabolique. So Diabolique, I think, is, by a pretty large margin, would be the more critically acclaimed and lauded film. See, I I don't think the Green Mile was, like, unlauded, but as no. far as, like, like, like bulletproof who, classic. Yeah, who, who prob- thinks now, hey, what's one of the greatest films of the 90s? The Green Mile. No one really thinks that. Um, My dad. My dad sure as shit thinks that. And maybe me too, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, but the Green <laughs> maybe Mile my dad was right the whole time. The Green Mile is like in the top forty of the entire IMDb top two fifty, along with its its friend number one Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank Redemption, another Frank Darabont joint. Yes, Frank Darabont has made like five movies, um, and four of them are quite good. I would say. I've never seen The Woman in the Room, uh, so I can't speak to that. He wrote the 80s blog, which is which fucking rules. Yeah, and The Fly 2 and Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. The best Nightmare on Elm Street, which is cool. Frank Darabont has had a very, very interesting career. 
And he's he's kind of joined at the hip with Stephen King the way that Robert Zemeckis is joined at the hip with Steven Spielberg. But but not the like until 2007, not the horror Stephen Stephen King. It was no. the Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere comes The Mist, which isn't again isn't even really that much of a horror movie. Like there's a horror premise to it, but it's much more about the interactions of um, the people within the mall. So and then he felt. Mall, I'm sorry. Then the he felt burnt enough. He felt okay. burnt enough by the reception of that movie, I guess, that he went off to create The Walking Dead. God, which is interesting. <laughs> like, like I always think of The Mist as being very well received, but maybe that was like like an after it was out of theaters kind of thing. Maybe it's like a middling. Maybe it was middling. It wasn't exactly a, a critical success, so far as I can tell. Seventy percent of Rotten Tomatoes. Hey. Oh, okay. And it made fifty-seven point three million on an eighteen million budget. That's those are solid results. I must be thinking of something else. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. Oh, I think I might be thinking of something else. The Young Indiana I think Jones I'm Chronicles. Of, no, I'm thinking of the television series Under the Dome. Never mind. Oh yes, 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 yes. Which had a good start, but ended kind of shitty. Much like the book, but which is based on a Stephen King property. Yeah. So you can exp- <laughs> so you can see my uh, see my mistake. Um, um, but we, yeah, so the Green Mile has the the like seemingly the less critical clout, but more clout among the layman. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it because ha- this is perhaps more than any other film that we've seen on the show so far. I don't know that this is a hot couch guy movie. I don't think it's a dorm room movie, but this is a classic of dad cinema. This is like maybe the most IMDb movie that we've watched so far. I think you're right because it has it's a four quadrant it'll make it'll make you laugh it'll make you cry and it'll make you think about god what else and do you need like, in the film there's like there's this movie has everything this yes, movie it really has does. a lot of shit in it it uses its got, 3 hours to the fullest it's like we just talked about how uh, Gone with the Wind is stuck in one gear for most of its running time. This movie can't sit the fuck still. This movie has a, a, a six foot eight magical Negro. It has uh, Tom Hanks pissing on his knees. It has Bonnie Hunt screaming in ecstasy. It has a joke where they fade at night on the window to the room where Tom Hanks and Bonnie Hunt are fucking. And then they fade into the same window the next morning, and they're still fucking. But also, this movie's entire premise hinges on the fact that the longer you live, the more it feels like penance. What? What a film. I I, I don't can't make heads or tails of this fucking movie. It made me cry. I mean, I can't like the the whole Mr. Jingles subplot is cheating almost, but it works so well. Because I have seen rodents die. I've held them in my hands as they've passed on. And seeing an old as fuck mouse is like heartbreaking. Yeah. That mouse is supposed to be like, that mouse is supposed to be 64. You know how old, old mice are when they die? They're three. Uh, But so something I think is really interesting is that you say that that's almost cheating. But when we look at a movie that does cheat, um, it's called Hachi a Dog's Tale. Hachi a dog tail, that's right. But Hachi does not have the sort of filmmaking yes, power well, like, behind there's it. Not, a, a, there's no like filmmaking behind it, really. Like It's just kind of thrown together. But also, the three hours this movie takes 
and it luxuriates in those three hours, I feel... Yeah, it's a very... It's, here's this thing. Well, it's, like you mentioned, it takes an leisurely. hour before we get to the fact that, like, that John Coffey literally has magic hands. Yeah, it's like John Coffey is fucking Black Jesus. Yes. Uh, the fact that it takes so long and it gives you so much time with these people and time with the mouse. Like, you have a lot of time with Mr. Jingles. Mr. Jingles is in half of this movie. Yes. And... Like, he's a plot point. That becomes... He's like a character. <laughs> yeah. He's it, like... That, that's why it doesn't feel... You, it, like you said, it's almost cheating, but it's not. Because, like, the film works for it. It's not just Hashi being lazy. is like a cipher. Yes. Hashi is like a cipher for dogs. Mr. Jing- Mr. Jingles is like an individual. Yeah. This is a specific That sounds mouse. really, really weird to say. But it's true. 100% true. I, I completely agree. But I'm really interested because I, I will... Spoiler alert, I like this movie quite a bit, and I'll explain, like, why exactly that is in a moment, but I'm interested to hear more of, like, your reaction to it, because you said you've seen it kind of, you've seen every piece of it on, like, cable TV when it's been on just randomly, but you've never really sat down and watched it, right? Well, I've watched it, I think, I remember watching it, like, I must have been in high school, because this, this is, like, one of the few films that my dad didn't sleep through. My dad would just like throw a movie on, start watching it, and half an hour later, he'd be snoring like a freight train. Freight trains don't snore. It's called a metaphor. <laughs> it's a simile, actually. That's why you're the poet. That's why I'm the poet. That's right. But no, I mean, I remember pretty much every part of this movie, like most of it. But like, maybe not like the or like, I I, I do remember seeing at least a lot of this movie because Michael Jeter's execution scared the shit out of me. Yeah, it's terrifying. That was like an. It's an early, it's an early traumatic image. It's Michael Jeter getting fucking, uh, catching fire, an old Sparky, and the VHS box art to the film Thinner, another Stephen King joint. <laughs> That's good box art, to be fair. <laughs> it's, it, it sure shit worked. But, uh, it's better than the movie. It's better than the movie. I, this movie, I can't, <laughs> I can't tell if this movie's any good. Like, it's either <laughs> the bet, it's either the best movie, or the worst movie. It can't be both. Like, and it's not like this movie is, has great filmmaking, awesome performances, very slick looking. It's got themes. It's got, it's got everything that a good movie should have. It's got all the, it's got all the parts of a good movie arranged by a madman. <laughs> and Frank Darabont. I think might be the slickest, most sure hired hand there is. Because I don't think Frank Darabont has a style. But Frank Darabont is very, it's Frank Darabont is very stylish. He's got Hmm. the perfect middle brow Oscar aesthetic. This is what people think of when they think of Oscar bait. But this has got like these weird Stephen King edges. Yeah, this, on this it. is way too weird to just be Oscar bait. Like, there's a it's lot of details in here. So like that weird. detail would not be in a regular movie. The fucking, the fucking mouse. The the fact that we spend a good three minutes with Tom Waits, uh, Tom Waits, Tom Hanks, Rail and his wife, <laughs> and um, like like the the piss it's, subplot. It's very Stephen. It's very Stephen King. Yes, and like I I I. I think that that sort of clash is where the movie gets a lot of its power. But there's a fucking scene in this movie where they take John Coffey, this gigantic linebacker fridge of a human being, and they, it's, it's, it's like, uh, there's a scene in this which is basically cuck porn. 
Okay, let's just not <laughs> beat around the bush. There's You're a not scene in this wrong. That is basically, cuck porn. <laughs> because James Cromwell, his wife, who is played by who is it? Patricia Patricia Clarkson. Patricia Clarkson. She's got a tumor, and this is the thing. The movie is so good at setting up that John Coffey has these powers. He he starts off with like, what's the first thing that happens? It's 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 uh, Tom Hanks, right? Uh, no. The first thing happens before that, I believe, doesn't it? Because like. Um, what's the first thing that happens what's the first no, thing that you're he right you're right you're right you're right you're right no it's tom hanks yeah then it's the mouse then it's mr jingles so it's like it's like stepping up each time and yeah and so so first of all it's a bladder infection it's like a, it's like it's it's a dick infection then he brings a living being back from the veil and now we're dealing with a can with, with a with a with a with a tumor inside of uh patricia clarkson's brain so fucking john coffee Looking like fucking William the Fridge Perry goes up into James Cromwell's fucking bedroom where his fucking waif cancer ravaged wife is laying there. And they all but like fucking start making out. And Patricia Clarkson is healed. And it's like, was there not anyone on set who was like, this is kind of weird. The imagery here is kind of weird. But I will say, okay, here's here's me both agreeing with your criticism but also not agreeing with it because i don't know if this is a, i don't know if it's a criticism of the film qual film exactly. because this is a very stephen king thing to add because it's thuddingly obvious but so fucking unthinkably weird that it would even be there in the first place i think that john coffee in general is i i mean i made this joke on twitter where it's like like if stephen king was describing this character to you it's like hey it's a giant black man who is on death row for raping and killing two white girls but he didn't do it mm-hmm. but he is also magic and has the intellect and innocence of a child that is and and also basically exists to make white people's lives better that character because there's no, has other, there's some no other black people in this movie right no yeah like, no literally not right literally zero like i don't even think it's a cameo well no no there's i guess at the uh at the beginning there's like the chain game Yes, correct. Like there we go. There is a cameo no of people main... on a chain gang. That is the other black characters there's, in this film. There's no other main characters that are black. There's no even named characters that are black. but Except for John, John Coffee. So this is a character that... Maybe, maybe when he's being executed, <laughs> but there's definitely no named fucking characters. It, it's very fair to say that this is a problematic portrayal and a problematic uh, character. But... But... <laughs> But what I think is so fascinating about this film is I think it kind of knows that. And I think it is pushing on a button there. And it uses that in not just bad ways, but also good ways. Like, I think the fact that, like, I think if, if your setting is is the setting it is, which is like 1935 Louisiana, um, mm-hmm. and you're going to have... Good accents in this movie. Yes. Good value accents. Um, and you're going to have, essentially, Jesus, who... Because of who he is, no one is willing to like give the, give the benefit of the doubt or to actually care whether like they're guilty of the thing that they were accused of. It kind of has to be a black guy, like that. That's what that's what makes sense. If Jesus was black in the Depression South, no one would give a shit. Yes, and I, and I think that the movie knows that this is America. This is America during a specific time period, and you know Stephen King knew um, that this is America during a very specific time period, and this is. The person who makes sense in this role. And this is also a person who, like, John Coffey is also 
very wise and insightful. And like, even though like it seems like he's dumb, he's not actually. Like, there's a lot more going on there. And I think that Michael Clark Duncan especially brings things out of him. This isn't quite like the fucking. Um, this isn't quite Peter Sellers and and being there, where where it says a lot more about the people around him than it does about him. This is the opposite. Yes, like like things he says impacts people because they're different from what they're 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 challenging them, if anything. And I think right, not just sort of reinforcing what they already think. Yeah, and and I think that the fact the that um, we like Tom Hanks, his character uh, Paul Edgecombe. Spoiler, he lives far longer than he's supposed to because um, of John Coffey essentially giving part of himself to him. And Yeah, in order to basically prove his innocence to him. Yes. He basically it, he basically gives him a vision. Which is also that such is a loaded thing in that like for this for this black man to prove to this white person that he is not guilty of this that crime, innocent, yeah. that he has to give part of himself to him. And Paul Edgecombe comes to the conclusion that um, he's been blessed with an unnaturally long life because of this thing that happened to him. And the same reason that Mr. Jingles is still alive. And he's come to the conclusion that it is not actually like a good thing. It is a punishment for letting John die and for for killing John, essentially. Like, he's the one responsible for killing John, even though it is his job. That's not an excuse. And essentially what's happening is this character is being punished for allowing this prejudice to continue and allowing this prejudice to be born out. And I think that's really fascinating. And I think, like, even that scene you talk about with, it's basically look like set up as cuck porn and, like, is shit. sure is. And it is shot so that you think at first that he is kissing her. I dreamed her. about you, John Coffey. Yes. I dreamed we met in the dark. So, 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 like, that is a very, like, loaded thing, especially, like, out of context when you're taking it here, but it's also the religiousness of it and the spirituality yeah, like, of it is also so powerful oh my and God. beautiful, like, genuinely beautiful. And so, uh, sh- should I say, like, sh- should I, should I, should I gush for a second on how much I love this movie? By all means, I mean, I'm like my my piece is like this occupies the same the same kind of space in my brain as something like Field of Dreams, which is sentimental and strong, and like it has a strong sentimental value and a strong sentimental pull, but is a completely addled film. Okay, when you really think about it. And also amazing performances. Like, like literally, like, I don't think there's a single bad performance in here. This is the fucking character actor yeah, like, all-star. I, I'm going to read off real quick. So we got Tom Hanks, got David Morris, Bonnie Hunt, Michael Clark Duncan, awesome. James Cromwell, Michael Jeter, Graham Greene, Doug Hutchinson, Sam Rockwell, Barry Pepper, great Graham Greene. Patricia Clarkson, and Harry Dean Stanton. Like, Jesus Christ. Wh- and not listed oh, among and, this. Oh, yes, Gary, Gary Sinise. Fucking Sinise. <sighs> Who has one scene and steals it? Man, what a cast! And uh, and like I le- like I think they're all really really good in it. There's no bad performances in this movie. Yeah, man, Sam Rockwell really like to say the n word, don't we? Sure does. Ugh. Remember when Sam Rockwell? <laughs> I think I said this to you in the chat. Remember when Sam Rockwell was exciting? And like you used I to mean, look forward to seeing him in the movies, and then like, like like his last few years have been a real fucking mess. Everyone gets lost in the wilderness sometimes. Sure, let's let's hope he finds his way back, but. I know that Oscar says, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so there's a lot of good things going on in this movie. Uh, a, I think it's very entertaining. Like, I could sit down and watch it again, even though it's three hours. I think it's... It's a brisk three. It's a brisk three. As opposed to the plotting four of the of the of a Gone with the Wind. Yeah. the There's not a single scene in this movie that I didn't remember, like, almost... Like, I haven't seen this movie since I was probably 16. I remembered every single part of it, like, straight through. I saw it quite a bit as a kid. 
um, because my parents also like it quite a bit. But the thing that was most impactful upon watching it again is that I think it's, and this is going to be a big claim, so I don't plan to back all of it up right now, but... Should I get ready? Should I strap in? Sure. I, I, I'm not going to go as long as I did last time um, on God, because that was already a bit much on the seventh seal, but in a, in a shorter version of it. It's definitely a space on the bingo card that totally exists a bit. Yes. I think this is, of mainstream movies uh, of the 90s, I think this is the most, the most touching and incredible film about the grace of God that exists in there. And the difficulty of that. And I think that there's two moments watching this that really stuck out to me this time. Essentially, there's two villains in this film. There's Percy Wetmore, who is mm-hmm. one of the guards and is just a piece of shit. Hates everyone. Doug Hutchinson, that guy. Yes, Doug Hutchinson. Um, hates everyone. Is a, essentially a spoiled, rich dickhead who they can't even fire because his, what is it, his, his uncle's the governor or something along those lines. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. And he also causes, um, what do you call it, Edward Delacroix uh, to die. Michael Jeter. An incredibly painful death because he chooses not to soak the sponge that goes on his head before he gets electrocuted to death. So he just... Which would be the conduit of the electricity from the thing to the body. So his his body just essentially lights on fire. Just fries. So bad guy. Terrible guy. Bad guy. No good. But there's also a scene where um, Wild Bill, which is Sam Rockwell's character... Essentially gr- grabs him and sexually assaults him. Like, like, like ve- it's very quick, right. but like he he grabs his dick more or less and whispers some very shitty things into his ear. And Percy, like, like finally is able to pull away from that. And I think that uh, I, I shouldn't say I think like I like the way that I interpreted the movie and the way the movie felt to me is that in that moment, Percy is like a genuinely sympathetic character, and you feel awful for him. Uh, because there's such a terror right. in his eyes. Like there's there's this for for this moment, his awful like front falls away, and his awful like like meanness and coldness and cruelty falls away, and he's just someone who was incredibly harmed by another person, and he pees himself, and it's not even like 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 the there's other. There's a lot of piss in this movie. Yeah, but but like 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 some of the other inmates are like laughing at him, and it makes sense because like he's awful to them. But I don't think the movie wants you to laugh at him. I think the movie is like, this was terrible. This was awful. Yeah, this is the lowest he's been. So there's that moment. And there's the other moment with Wild Bill himself, who is even worse than Percy. Like, he is essentially, he's the person who killed the two girls that John Coffey was accused of killing, uh, which we find out later. One might say he's the devil. Uh, He, like I said, sexually assaults Percy. He's constantly like... Uh, harassing the other guards and like harassing John Coffey and just just terrible human being. But there's a moment where to punish him, they throw him in a padded cell. Padded cell and and when they show him the straitjacket and show him the padded cell, like there's this animal terror in his eyes. Like right that but Sam Rockwell is very good at. Yeah, and even if you don't, even if you don't think that he deserves any better. It still is like, this shouldn't happen to a person. Like, this is such a terrible thing that you, for a moment, actually do feel a kind of sympathy for him. And I think the fact that the film does that, and does it with both these characters that are more or less irredeemable, sure, speaks to, um, this is going to sound, I apologize to everyone if I give you church flashbacks here, 
But we already we've already done the church flashbacks <laughs> earlier in the episode. It speaks to the fact that this movie is all about the fact that we don't deserve saving and we don't deserve grace, but we are given it anyways. And that is like that is what mercy is, is giving someone something they don't deserve. Because Paul Edgecombe, who is our hero, is a bad person. He kills people for a living. That is his job. Like, not a good guy. There's no really good people in this besides Patricia Clarkson, maybe. Everyone else has things in them. Bonnie Hunt, I guess? Maybe. Yeah, sure. Why not? Which, hey, that's that's loaded. The two women are the people who didn't do anything wrong. But hey, well, that's we will talk about that at a later podcast, maybe if this moves on. I don't, I don't want to assume anything. But I don't even know that. that. That is why I found this film like genuinely like powerful and moving this time through. Is not just because of the way that it moves your emotions, which I think it does very well, but the fact that um, John Coffey and its implied God moves through this film, giving forgiveness to those who don't deserve it, and helping those who don't deserve these things is a really insightful thing, I think. And and the fact that like there's that moment where like that final discussion that Paul and John have, where Paul's basically like, tell me what to do. Do you want me to take you out of here? Cause like I can get you out of here and like let you run free. And like as long as you can get as far as you can get away. Because he's like I it's the thing he says to him is like when I stand at judgment what do I tell God that I killed one of his most beautiful creations? Yeah, like what am I like how am I going to defend this? Yes. And essentially John Coffey quotes himself from earlier um when when he shows Paul uh what happened with those two girls and he says uh like we see Wild Bill tell the two girls like hey if either of you does anything I'm going to kill the other one. And what John Coffey says is he killed them with with their love. Which is a heartbreaking thing to hear. And then that's essentially what John asks Paul to do at the end is I think I think he says, Tell him tell him you've done him a kind tell him you've done me a kindness. Yes. Because like and the reason is because John he he describes like all the suffering of the world as being like glass in his head. Like that he can't get away of and he just he can't be here anymore. Like Jesus is literally so done with this world that <laughs> that he can't even be here anymore. That is how bad the world is. Um, it's in a way like I I express to you is a lot like I mean it's it's a bit of a Gnostic reading as well, and it's also a lot like Schopenhauer's metaphysics, which I'm going to pause on because I personally want this movie to move forward, and I have a lot of other things to say about in the future. But I oh, uh, but I I'm just saying that I think this movie is I don't think it's perfect, but I think it is as good as a movie that has glaring imperfections can be. So the ball's in my court, basically, huh? <laughs> yeah. Um. And, and and just while you're thinking, I will also say that 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 scene where uh, John heals Patricia Clarkson's character, Melinda, um, I think is also really beautiful because, like, obviously, like there's the levels that you t- touched on, but it's also just as a statement of faith. The fact that she talked about having a dream about John, and that they were both lost and they found each other in the dark, and that's how they ended up. <laughs> back maybe somewhere decent and what a beautiful metaphor for human connection and spiritual connection and and god's love that it like essentially like that it's it's not through the good things we do that we're saved it's through our weakness and the things that we do wrong i don't even know where to start (laughs) um like i hear you i hear you loud and clear ah 
I think I think Diabolique is the better film. Okay. Do I think Diabolique is a good enough film to use a Vino on? And if you because do, here's the question. If you do, do you think I would also use a Vino? You're already down two and we're not even half yet, halfway through the bracket yet. Mm-hmm. I know there's some shit up the bracket that you want to defend. You're going to have to get real picky with it if you only have one left. Correct. Ugh. Like I said, the Green Mile is either like... Well, here, again, look, like fucking... if I can phrase it for you in a way that I think works for me. So you said the Green Mile is either the best movie ever or the worst movie ever. Yeah, it's, well, it's either like five stars or it's like two. There's like... And we can both agree that Diabolique is very, very, very good. But I don't think it's ever in the running for like one of the best movies ever. Uh, but it's a conditional best movie, right? What do you mean? In, in the sense of like, it's not always the best movie of all time. It's like, it has the same behaviors reflect the good movie and the bad movie at the same time. It kind of depends on where I place myself. It's like a, uh, it's like an illusion. It's like, um, uh, it's like a, it's like a magic, uh, it's like a magic eye puzzle. See, that sounds like the kind of thing that we could talk about for like four more rounds. Here's the thing. I think this is something that you could talk about more for four more rounds. I, mean, I, I think like you've already said like quite a bit of like interesting things, and like I, I think you continuing to puzzle this out is genuinely like interesting thing to me. Whether it's interesting to you is obviously like on the table, but I would I would not be averse to it. Because my gut is like I suspect like my gut is like Diabolique moves on. I don't know if it's like something that I want to use a veto on. And there's like no, there's like no other, there's like, there's another friend, like, I thought that like, uh, Shawshank would be this movie, right? I thought this is the- Shawshank's a way worse movie. And also Shawshank's going up against Boogie Nights, so- Against Boogie Nights. Yeah, Shawshank's getting fucked. Not to give away the spoiler of the last of our matchups in the first round. Maybe, (laughs) maybe, Maybe I have this kind of religious conversion with that- um, but I've seen Shawshank before, and even then, I didn't like it as much as The Green Mile. Oh man! Like, like if so, so Frank Darabont is kind of the patron saint of IMDb in a way because of Shawshank sure. and now The Green Mile. I'm sure a lot of these people like the The Walking Dead as well. Sure. So it's he's the king of normies, basically. Yes, and we could have the king of normies move on to at least a second round. I will say this: it will definitely it's definitely the most in flavor pick, but in flavor doesn't necessarily mean correct. <laughs> I don't know why I'm waffling so much, because I can see the merits of pushing, uh, of pushing the Green Mile on, but like, and it's also like a Diabolique is like this perfect nasty clockwork object. Moving Diabolique on f- feels cleaner, whereas moving the Green Mile on is is let a me, mess. Let me pull up the bracket. Let's meta game a little bit. More, it's going against I'm the really, kid for what I'm, it's worth. No, no, I'm I'm looking I'm looking deeper. Okay, to see if there's so any other normie it's going movies up against or. The- like thrillers? Because in this pod, uh, Green Mile, assuming it goes on, let's say it beats the kid. I'm going to say that it goes up against Psycho in mm-hmm. round three. Mm-hmm. I think it might go against Gran Torino. No shit, huh? That's if, if you pulled me now and said, hey, which would you prefer to win Gran Torino or Psycho? My gut says Gran Torino. I think I would have to use a veto on that. Well, we'll cross that bridge when we get to there. But either way, it's going up against either one of those two, theoretically. I think those I are think both, both really these... interesting matchups. <sighs> For where I think the Grand Torino matchup is more interesting because they're both movies that have very complicated relations with race. But yeah, I can't like I can't deny the just 
puzzling effect. Because I do think, like, watching The Green Mile is like a net positive. Both of these are. And I do think I'll have, I do think I would have more, you're right, I think I would have more to say about Green Mile than Diabolique. Diabolique is kind of like, uh, as, Il, as Ian Holm, the late Ian Holm will say, a perfect specimen. And I will say, just- For a perfect organism. On this right? episode, Diabolique is the one we've talked about the least. That was the shortest discussion. That's true. It's fucking, it's a great fucking movie. <sighs> All right, let's move on to Green Mile. Thank oh oh my gosh I am so happy right now Derek you don't even know I'm thinking I'm thinking a bit also it's meta gaming it's also like you know for the pod I mean because I don't like I still don't know how many stars I give this movie I can't deny its effect and I can't deny how I can't deny just how fucking bizarre this movie is and how interesting it is to talk about and you, uh, we get to talk about Schopenhauer next time it's gonna be great. <laughs> we'll both reread the will, the world is will and representation. All two volumes of it. It'll be wonderful. Sure. So that being said, no vetoes used. Yes. Next, uh, in round two, we're going to have um, the kid versus the green mile. Both favorites win this time. Diabolique, you gave a good performance. Uh, you sh- you shouldn't <sighs> feel ashamed of yourselves. You 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 really tried. The movies that we have had to sacrifice on the altar of round one. Remember when Gone Girl it's left? It's sickening. Gone Girl! <sighs> that was your name that beat it, right? That was my veto that did it, too. Oh. Um, and here's a question, no, here's a question no, for the no, audience. No. Would I have used my own veto to try to move uh, Green Mile forward again? I'll never say. You'll just have to guess on your own. I, I'm looking just a little bit up the bracket, and I think I see something that I think I'm more willing to use my, my veto for, my second veto. Interesting. Is it going to be the Godfather versus... Just, no, you don't actually need to use it for close-up, because that's not even a thing. Uh, oh, oh, I'm wor- uh, don't tell me, but here's my prediction. I'm putting on my like my thinking cap. I think... We've had this discussion. I think that you might want to move Amelie on. That's my guess. I think that Amelie, Amelie is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. We'll get to that. We'll, that we'll cross that bridge <laughs> when we get to. Should should I not should I should I not say my take uh, on Amelie to keep us in suspense? Yeah, let, let, let's let's keep the listeners in suspense. But that is my guess: is that Amelie is going to be this fight, Amelie versus Shutter Island. Never seen Shutter Island. I can already say it moves forward in my in my book. I've seen both. And that's all I'll say. So, oh no, it's probably actually no, it's probably not. Look, at it, it's, it's definitely Raiders versus Nausicaa. Where it's like I'm a hippie and I'm going to want Nausicaa to move forward, and you're going to say Raiders. I- but I mean, we've talked about this yes. on the show. <sighs> Anyways, um, we need to f- end this. Oh shit! Star Wars versus Jaws is up next. Jesus Christ! Okay, at least those are those are. I mean, it's not up next. It's got a little bit of time. It's got a little bit of time. That's a coming attraction, yeah. but that's an interesting matchup. I, I, and that's one I don't care. Who, that, that, those are both great. I mean, the, yeah, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. So, uh, so that's our show. Um, do we have any sort of ancillary stuff that we want to take care of? I will say I'm sorry that these keep being two hours, so I keep not doing the fan fiction. <laughs> is the writing progressing though? I mean, it, it's it's stalled. Like I have the next couple chapters written, but I haven't written past then just because like I haven't used them yet. Okay. Here's what I'll say: We'll set up a vote in the chat or something after this episode comes out <laughs> on whether you want me to actually continue it. If you do, and these episodes keep being long and I can't really do it in here, I will do bonus episodes with just just those chapters. If you don't, I'm fine just dropping it. Not a big deal to me. Um, we have plenty of other shit in here. Oh, we're about to we're about to cross two, two yes, hours. Yes, and this here. is so. Should we not do the email? 
No, no, we are def- definitely going to do the email. People need to go and know how to get in touch. No, no, no. Uh, like, we got an email. Oh, we got an email. Oh, by all means, please. Okay, please. here's the problem. It is like one, two, three, four, five, six paragraphs long. So, I think, Joss, I love your enthusiasm. Probably going to have to put you off for one more week because <laughs> I have stuff to do. <laughs> I have a life that I have to go back to. And it's been two hours. Uh, so... I think it's time to call it quits for today. But Joss, don't worry, we're getting there. Are they six like discrete questions or Um, it's about M and their reading of M. Uh Ah yeah. okay. It's it's a it's a generally right. really interesting email. I'm uh interested to to get your perspective on it. So we'll get to that next time, question mark. Um but for the time being, if you want to get in touch with us. Uh, you can get in touch with us via email at middlebrowmadness at gmail.com. It's middlebrowpod on Twitter. Middlebrowpod on Twitter. So uh, you can email us your favorite uh, vegetarian and vegan recipes, Bollywood recommendations, British opinions of the Picts, and whatever other fucking shit we talked about in the past. Uh, but also, you know, send, send what your heart desires. If you want to get a hold of us on Twitter, as Isabel said, the show is at Pod. We are individually at Derek underscore G and at Space Jam Fan. I'll let you guess which one of us is which. <laughs> uh, we are also on Letterboxd at those same handles. We are a uh, proud uh, member of the fully independent and fully loaded uh, Noise Space uh, Podcast Collective, or whatever the fuck it's called, uh, run by our friend Matt, uh, gracious enough to host whatever the fuck this is. Give us a rating and a review on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you grade podcasts. I don't know. I haven't. I don't think I've ever given a podcast a rating in my wow. life. What a, I'm a yeah, shitty terrible podcast, podcast listener. listener. I always give I them five stars. It. I don't write anything because, like, why would I? But be be more like Isabel. Don't be like me. Uh, if listen, we get so few of them. A, they do make a difference, and B, we will read them on us. Yes. We can, we can promise that. Okay, so I think that's it, unless I'm missing some. Oh, I should. Oh, I should plug the next two. The the next two matchups for our next episode. They are going to be witness for the uh, witness for the prosecution versus Rang de Basanti. We get to watch an Amir Khan joint again, and Coco versus Stalker. So that's the shit we're gonna have to watch for next time. And until next Wait, time. Wait, no pause. I had a thing to say. You just didn't give me a chance. You rude man. Oh shit! What do you have to say? Uh, what I was gonna say is that I also have a plug. Uh, another podcast that is on oh. XYZ uh, is that's right for a good time. Uh, it is a podcast with me and uh, both Derek and I's friend Juan, where um, I and them. Mm. That's not how you phrase that usually, but hey, we. we that's the better way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> um, talk about porn, but not just like oh, like hey, this this gave me a boner. It's it's not it's not the Peter meter kind of thing. It's more like going into. You want to run that by me one more time? The Peter meter. It's not a thing you're familiar with. No. Um, it was a thing that um oh, what was his name? Al Goldstein in Screw Magazine used to have something called a Peter meter, which was he would review pornos in Times Square based on how much of a boner they gave him. Okay. So this is not that. <laughs> Instead, uh, we actually go into kind of use the porn as a jumping off point to either talk about like the first two episodes. One of them was about a lesbian bondage porn that was styled after a silent film uh, called Ecstasy in Berlin 1923. I think that's what it's called. And we talked about, like, uh, physicality in porn. We talked about, like, subspace and, like, the idea of fetish and things like that. And the next episode, we talked about Nitrate Kisses by Barbara Hammer. And we talked about queer history and why we both hate young queer communities um, and why we're both bitter bitches. 
And the next episode preview, uh, it'll already be out by the time you hear this, but it's about uh, Belladonna's Fetish Fanatics 4, <laughs> um, which we use to talk about performance in porn and specifically performers like Sasha Gray and Belladonna and how they transitioned into less into non-adult films. And that's the whole point of it is we're just talking about porn, talking about sex in ways that are not just about boners. Although there's a lot of boners in there. That was a terrible pitch for a podcast that I like quite a bit. It's also only 30 minutes long. So, hey. Yeah, it's like not not the friggin' marathon sessions like yes. like these are. Um, so now I'm good. So that being said, oh, um, until next time, <laughs> I'm Isabel Arf, and I'm Derek Gunn. I have movies and be jolly and happy New Year. Have movies, be jolly, happy New Year. Uh, don't commit tax fraud. I don't know. Bye. <laughs>